now if we all could stand for the reading of God's word. It'll be up on the screens, but if you have a Bible, follow along in your Bible. The reading is from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 20 and verse 23. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there, as she did long ago when she was young, as when I freed her from captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so that they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine and you will finally know me as the Lord. I will show love to those who I called not loved, and to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people, and they shall reply, you are our God. This is the word of God. Let's pray for the sermon. Lord God, thank you for loving us so deeply and so much and forgiving so much and calling us back again and again so that you can continue to love us and lift us up. Lord, I pray for Kyle as he gives you the word this morning, gives your word this morning, help it land in our hearts and grow, that we can show that love to others in the world. In Jesus' name. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series, which I'm thrilled about, and I hope that you are too. So if you're my age or younger, um, you might know who the neutrinos are. Does anyone know who the neutrinos are? No Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle fans in the room? Come on, just me? Okay. (laughs) They weren't in the the cartoon series long in the 80s, so um, that's maybe why. I was a mega fan. Well, the neutrinos um, were a race of extra-dimensional humanoid teenagers from Dimension X, which was in the multiverse. How many people are confused already? Okay. Just consider them aliens, okay? That's an easier way to identify them. They were aliens. And they were, in, they were introduced into the cartoon series in the 80s um, in the second season. And we learn in this series that one of the turtles, Michelangelo, I believe he had the orange mask, that he was falling in love with the neutrino Kala from Dimension X. I was about eight years old at the time when this turtle-alien romance budded between the two. And I was fascinated. Um, Little eight-year-old Kala, who was, again, a fake cartoon character began to win my heart and I began to see what Michelangelo saw in her. (laughs) It's interesting as children 
how familiar we are with romance from the earliest of ages. And we can make up things like the multiverse, and some of you hardcore multiversers are saying that's, that it's real and that it's not made up. I'm sorry, but I don't think it is real. Um, but <laughs> we can make up things like the multiverse and ninja turtles and neutrinos, but we didn't make up romance. Isn't that true? Romance is in the air. It's spring. April showers bring May showers. May flowers. <laughs> right? Romance is in the air, right? Birds are having a little too much fun in the trees right now. and It's part of our created order to know about love and romance. Now, I'll have to admit to you that when I was eight, I had a little crush on Kala, the neutrino. <laughs> um, but I had more cartoon crushes. And you guys are laughing at me and making fun of me, but you had cartoon crushes too, like Ladybug's Bunny, you know, like if she was a real lady. But um, how about Gadget um, Hackwrench? You guys know who that is? No, come on. She was the, the girl mouse in the Disney cartoon Chippendales Rescue Rangers. And I, I fought, I, I mean, I couldn't wait till the series ended to see if Chip and Hackwrench would fall in love with each other and that realize like, that they both love each other. Um, young boys, I think, find themselves having kind of weird crushes um, that make us think we need to go see Dr. Phil when we're later, uh, older later on in life. Um, no, eight-year-olds can say My Little Pony is for girls, but we all are captivated when romance is introduced even to our tougher and more brawny television shows or fantasies or whatever it is that we're involved in. You know, add to the confusion a, a seven-year-old boy uh, having a, just a warm feeling in his tummy walking by the Victoria's Secret store in the mall. How, what does this all mean? I don't even get it yet, right? Grow <laughs> all right, yeah, I said that, okay? Um, you know, then I'm 12, right, and I'm sitting down at the bleachers at school, and the girl that I'm kind of crushing on sits next to me, and her shoulder touches mine, and my heart can't stop beating, right? You all know what I'm talking about, right? Just as simple as a shoulder touching another shoulder. You say, you know, these seats are kind of close to each other in this chapel. That just happens automatically in here. <laughs> we can all understand, I think, the lure of romance from a young age, um, I rooted for Michelangelo and Chip to get the girl they loved. Um, it's in our hearts from the earliest ages. Our desire for it, I think, is insatiable. Um, no one taught me to want it. It was just there. Isn't that true? <clears throat> about 10 years ago, um, I stopped dreaming about cartoon chipmunks and actually married a real woman. <laughs> I talked her into it. Thank you. Took me about two hours of convincing, but she finally said that she would marry me. And um, what a wonderful day that was when I took her to Boston and I proposed to her and she said yes. And 10 years later, we have three beautiful children. Um, and we've known ups and downs in our relationship, but our love is stronger than I think it's ever been. Um, before, prior to her, don't, don't you know that I have experienced, as I'm sure many of you have, the anticipation of love, you know, having a crush on someone, maybe the exchange of it, you know, communicating it and it's reciprocal, and then seeing it fall apart, the demise of it, and it ends. 
having your heart broken, whether that was at 15 or 18 or 25 or 35. I've been a pastor long enough, too, believe it or not, to observe like young couples, sometimes old couples, just madly in love with each other, ready to get married, so excited, um, giddy, I guess for lack of a better word. And I get to sit across a desk from them and just enjoy that process with them and be a part of it. But I've also, days later, sat across from someone almost in the opposite situation, 10, 15, 20 years married. Wife or husband left them weeping in shock that this has happened to them. It's the most thrilling thing and the most devastating thing on the earth, love. Isn't that true? We all desire to love and to be loved on any level. Sometimes we'll just accept a friend, right? God made us that way. But God made us to love him. The reason, what I'm suggesting to you, is the reason we're so passionate to love and to be loved. It's not really about that girl or that guy. It's about God. That's what it's really about. That's the the love story under the love story, so to speak. He's the greater love. He's what you're really looking for. You say, oh, I want flesh and blood. Okay, good. He gave that to you. His name is Jesus Christ. See, he's the better love. He's what your heart really longs for. He's the romance that God created for you to have. You see, that's the bridge that we need to cross. That's what we need to really believe. Because if we don't, then our spouse, our boyfriend, our our boyfriend, our girlfriend, they become Jesus And then it wrecks us, because they're not. Everything that we were hoping that they would provide, they don't. We become disillusioned and angry, and it falls apart. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's because they're not Jesus. Your heart longs for him. He's the better neutrino. (laughs) Right? He is the greater gadget hack wrench. He is super mandy. Right? (laughs) I think that because of the importance and value of love, marriage, and our love of God, um, that's why we're going to turn for the next, hopefully, about nine weeks to this illustrious book, this fantastic poem of love songs, the Song of Solomon. Now, some of you are already kind of furrowing your eyebrow if you've ever read it because you know how spicy it can be. Now, I, I, I pledge to you I'm going to do my best to tone it down as much as I can because I know that there are children here. It deals with things that make us blush even in the privacy of our own homes. But it's an Old Testament song. It's a love story. The Song of Solomon is part of what they call wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And it's a love song. It's poetry written between two people that dearly love each other, that are in love, get married. This is, this is all in this, po- this poem. They're in love... They get, they get engaged, we see their wedding, and then we see them having marital problems, right? And we see kind of like the, the dance and ba- of back and forth difficulty that comes along with relationships. So it's very real. So friends, if you're young or old or single or married, widowed or divorced, maybe happily married or unhappily, maybe jaded or crushed at the whole idea of love, 
Um, this sermon series is for you. It's not just for married people. It's for you. For the past six months, we've learned how to navigate through trauma and suffering through our faith in Jesus Christ when we went through 1 Peter. And now I want to turn that on its hinge, and I want to express to you the exhilarating love relationship that God wants with you, how loved you are, how cherished you are, the friend that you have in your relationship with God if you know him. And if you don't know him, I want to introduce you to him, to the one that you've always been after all along. He's the better romance, the greater love. And at the same time, I think by looking at how God loves us, we'll also learn how to love each other in our relationships with each other. How to nurture our passion with God, how to nurture our trust in him, how to understand the safety that's involved in relationship with him. And some of you, if you've been through awful relationships, you don't think relationships are safe. You think they're very dangerous places. So you don't, you don't enter into them anymore. You see, I want to introduce you to God, our Father and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the safest bridegroom you'll ever meet. So our new, our new series is going to be titled The Love of Loves. The Love of Loves. You see that on the screen. I borrowed that title from a wonderful book by Philip Ryken, um, titled by the same name, The Love of Loves. And it's, and it's worth the $10, if you have it, to go on christianbooks.com or amazon.com and buy it. Um, it's a wonderful little book. I'm leaning a lot on it for this sermon series. And it's worth the price, um, for sure. Our sermon text, of course, that we introduce today's sermon series is from Hosea, okay? That doesn't make sense, but hopefully it will by the end. I don't want to expound this text this morning. I'm not really going to expound any text in the Song of Solomon. I just want to introduce you to this wonderful book um, to show you why we're looking at it, okay? Um, if you're looking to the Bible for an example of a passionate and permanent love relationship between a man and a woman... This is the best place to go. The Song of Solomon, it doesn't give us what the Bible's ethics are on sex and romance and marriage and all this. Um, it doesn't describe a theology of marriage. It only complements it. It only follows what the Bible prescribes in other places. It doesn't really tell us when or how or to whom you should get married. It hints at these things because it's not really about, it's not so much a how-to, but rather it's a vision of what a, a healthy marriage between a man and a woman should look like and also what a healthy relationship with God looks like, okay? So we don't teach, um, poem. this is a song, it's a poem. And, and poems, as you know, don't primarily teach, they tend to rejoice, isn't that true? They tend to um, do more than, than just give us kind of abstract con concepts. So the love song is complementing, like I said, what the Bible teaches about marriage and even sexual ethics. So we can learn from these, and we will learn from these, um, the dynamics of love and marriage, but it's more about the actual shared love between two people. It's almost like watching a love story. It's like watching a love movie. Right, a romantic movie. The book, you'll notice, is unashamed to talk about things that would make us blush if we talked about them with each other. It's not embarrassed to bring issues up that relate to sexual union or marriage or what even is the goal of love. It's a book of love songs. 
It's a book of poetry. It's a book, friends, that I think we desperately need as a culture. Because it describes to us something very important. Amidst, uh, isn't there just so much confusion about love, marriage, sex, gender, all these different things in our culture? There's so much confusion that we don't know what to make of any of it. Our culture tends to kind of reverse engineer everything that the Bible has spoken to us. So there is this attitude in our culture that our God really is our appetite. What do you feel in your gut? Follow that feeling and you can't go wrong. That's sort of the message that our culture tells us. But amidst the hot and spicy passion and desire that these two people have for each other, they will not awaken love before it's time. They submit to God's word before they submit to their bellies. Isn't that interesting? You'll note, you'll note that as we, get through, as we go through this. Now you might have understand, trouble. How many people have a hard time understanding poetry? Like Shakespeare. You ever read Shakespeare? You know, I need my wife every line to explain what's going on because I'm clueless. She knows she's very good with Shakespeare. I don't know what's going on. Well, you might have a little trouble knowing what the Song of Solomon is about because it's poetry. It's about the love between a man and a woman. It really is. Um, but poetry tends to evoke rather than explain. Um, figures of speech aren't explained to us. Like, so for example, your hair is like a flock of goats. See, that's what it says in Solomon. It doesn't, there's not a footnote at the bottom that's telling us what that means. We just have to use our imaginations, you know, and sometimes we can do some study and understand what that meant culturally, but at the end of the day, there is no commentary. It's a poem. Your hair is like a flock of goats. So we're meant to, there's one that your nose is like the, a tower, right? That, that's a bad line today, <laughs> you know? Like, don't tell any woman that, um, so, so it can be confusing, right? We have a hard time understanding what is this about. But the second challenge, I think I kind of hinted at this already, is what is this really about, this poem? Is it about the love between a man and a woman? Or is it really about God's love for his people? Now, for, for centuries, for millennia, the church has interpreted the Song of Solomon as God's love for Israel, okay? So everything in the text meant something else. So, for example, Cyril of Alexandria claimed that that line in the Song of Solomon, when the lover is lying in the midst of her chest, that, it's really, that that's really Jesus bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, that's a little out there. I don't think <laughs> that's what they had in mind. You know, there was... Um, a. Um, in one of the commentaries I, I was reading, they mentioned a Sunday school teacher asking their children, what's furry and lives in a eucalyptus, a, a eucalyptus tree? What's furry? And, and all the, the kids are kind of puzzled. No one knows. So they look to the pastor's kid, because that's sometimes what people do. Just be, be careful. that They don't know everything about theology just because their dad's a pastor. Okay, but the, the pastor's kid says this. I know the answer has got to be Jesus, but it really sounds like a koala bear. <laughs> isn't, isn't sometimes a koala just a koala, right? 
And that happens in the Song of Solomon, too. It's not every little word isn't about Jesus. Sometimes it's just about relational love between a man and a woman. Okay? Jesus made clear, though, we got to be careful with this because the other end of the spectrum is everything's about Jesus to nothing is about Jesus. Right? This is, this is only about love and marriage. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, you foolish people. That's a nice way to begin a conversation. You foolish people. <laughs> you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, the prophets, and explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as hard as it is to believe, what Jesus is saying is that every word, written word of God points to him. That means that the Song of Solomon isn't just about marriage. It's about Jesus Christ, and we've got to figure out why. Okay? You know what else, too, that kind of points me to this? is what, What's the title of the book? The Song of Songs, right? Or the Song of Solomon. But um, most, most of um, the translations believe that the title of the book is actually is The Song of Songs. The Song of Songs. Isn't that interesting? Because in Hebrew, when you talk like that, it means the best song. Okay? The Holy of Holies in the Old Testament what was that place? It was the, the inner tent in the tabernacle where God's presence was. It was the holiest of holy places. Right? The song of songs, the love of loves, that can't be, be the love between a man and a woman. When I read scripture, the love of loves is God's love for his people. That's the greatest love. So even in the title itself, we have an indication that something more than marriage is going on here, okay? I want you to consider this great summary by a commentator. His name is Ian DeGuid. He says, I take the song to be a poem about two idealized people, a man and a woman, whose exclusive and committed love is great. But like all loves in this fallen world are far from perfect. Thus the song is designed to show us how far short of perfection we fall and to drive us into the arms of our true heavenly husband, Jesus Christ, whose love for his bride is truly perfect. What a wonderful description of this book. That's the context, by the way. That's the first thing I wanted to say about why we're going into this. That's the context of the Song of Solomon. The context and meaning of the song it's going to bring us into sort of like this waltz, right? You know what a waltz is? It's going to bring us into this sort of waltz where we're going to be here with marriage between a man and a woman and love and romance, and then 10 minutes later we're going to be over here talking about God and how he loves us. It's going to be like this kind of tapestry, this weaving in and out of how the love of a man and a woman in marriage points us to the greater love which we find in Jesus Christ. Amen? The second thing I want to introduce to you this morning is the rise and fall of romance. So that was the context. But I want to talk about the rise and fall of romance. 
How many people have experienced the rise and fall of romance in your life? Okay, most of us. If there's a God, and I believe that there is, if there's a God that created us in his image and communicates to us through the creation, the Bible says in Romans 1 and the book of Psalms in many places that God speaks to us through his creation and also through the word and through Jesus Christ himself. Then what the Bible has to say about how we relate with him and how we relate with others is to be taken very seriously. If God created us and designed us, that means that if we scorn his law, if we resist it, if we reverse engineer what romance and love is according to God, then it's going to bite us back. It's not going to be fun. We can try it. We can experiment it, experiment with it, but we'll find that it bites back every time. According to the Bible, romance is a story leading us to a greater story. Romance between a man and a woman is a story leading us to a greater story. A sort of parable. Marriage is a sort of parable that points us beyond man and woman to God's eternal romance. When the Bible talks about the love between a man and a woman or a husband and a wife, it's never simply about just their love. The subtext concerns God's love for us and what he desires with us. And because of this, we can learn if, God, if, if human love is supposed to teach us about what God wants with us, then we can learn how to love God by looking at how to love each other. And vice versa, we can learn about how to love each other by how God tells us that we love him. Does that make sense? So we learn to love our wives, our spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends better when we imitate the love of God for us to them. You see, we don't reverse engineer it. We stick to the plan how God has designed it, if we want to thrive. Even sexual union in marriage teaches us about spiritual union that we were created to share with the Creator. Humankind did not invent sexuality. God did. And he designed it not only to create a union between a man and a woman, he designed it to teach us to know the union that he desires with us. The love relationship that he is after with you. So this love song, in the Song of Solomon, it gives a lyrics to the love song of Jesus Christ on the cross. To his redemption and salvation. To the romantic advance that God is making to you and I. Isn't that great? The cross teaches us about how God romances us and brings us to himself. So love and marriage are part of the created order. God created it. And when God creates all the wide universe, he then fashions man and woman. This is very interesting. Did you know that the, fir- the first words ever recorded of mankind, do you know what they were? The first, re- If you take the Bible for, to be truth, then we'll all acknowledge that Adam and Eve were the first created human beings. And the first recorded words that we have of Adam is to express to God the love and union that he desires with his wife. 
Isn't that incredible? The first words out of Adam's mouth concerned his wife. He speaks to God. He's not speaking to, to, to Eve. He's, God had just created Eve. He turns to God and speaks to him, and he says words to God about the woman that he just created. This tells us something very important, that somehow marriage points us to the reason God created us to begin with. It points us to that. The Song of Songs is a summary of what the whole Bible is about. God's loving advance to be one with his creature. It's what the whole Bible is about. Consider Genesis again with me. There's a moving downward. Genesis chapter 1 begins with God. In the beginning, God, right? What does God do? He creates the light. And now we start seeing this kind of downward motion, like a funnel almost, pointing to something else. The lights, then the stars and the planets, then the earth, and then the seas and the land, the plants and animals, right? It's all kind of, kind of focusing in on something. The plants and animals, then it moves to the man and to the woman, to the woman, to marriage. It crescendos in this theme of marriage. From God to marriage, the universe, friends, this is what the Bible says. The universe is God's love language to you. It's his demonstration of love and passion and romance to you and I. It's his bouquet to his bride. It proves his power and love and expresses it to us. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalmist. God's intention in creating humanity in his image is to share friendship, love, and union with her and human marriage in its purest form, not in its sinful form, but in its purest form is meant to point us to that. Isaiah says this, your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. And he says this later, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Now, unless you were tricked into marrying your wife, right, and you didn't really want to be there, and you woke up with a tuxedo, right, Unless someone tricked you, you know what this is talking about. As the bridegroom rejoices in its bride, what is more thrilling than a couple in love when the bride first enters the runway? Nothing is more thrilling, at least to that bridegroom. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God loves us. He's in love with us. And friends, he calls us to be in love with him. Our relationship with God, as in marriage, is meant to be exclusive. That's why Scripture says you shall have no other gods. So God in Exodus 20 is a jealous God. He refuses to share his bride's affection with any other grooms. You see, as in our marriage, we should refuse to share or give our affection to any other spouse. Suddenly in the New Testament, the bridegroom shows up, Jesus Christ. Here he comes, and John the Baptist ushers the way. And what what does John the Baptist claim about himself? I am the friend of the bridegroom. 
because he has arrived. Something tragic happens, though. God's bride, his creation, commits spiritual adultery. We pant after other gods and lie with them. We believe that they're what we need. We believe that our joy and happiness is found in the affection of something else beside our creator. We pant after other gods. We worship everything but God. Satan winks his eye at us and we respond. So we play the harlot and we worship other gods on every high hill and every city square worshiping the created thing over the creator. All of us are guilty of this. God has proposed marital fidelity to us and we, ex- we have rejected it and turned to everything but him. So you know that in Jeremiah chapter 2 through 3, God divorces humanity, his people, because they've prostituted themselves to other lovers. Very strong language in the prophets in the Old Testament. It is not pretty. And Riken again notes, humanity has a ferocious appetite for worshiping other gods, for sleeping with other lovers. Friends, that's what it's like when we say that God isn't enough. We turn to money or sex or power or any other idol that we think can save us. But enter stage right, Hosea. This is beautiful. Please pay attention to this, because this is for you. Hosea is told, shockingly, by God to marry a prostitute. Why would God do this? Because yet again, he's using marriage to illustrate to us what he wants with us and what's happened in our relationship to us. Remember, this isn't just the rise of romance. It's the fall of romance. So God says, Hosea, marry a prostitute. Because I want to show you and Israel just how serious it is to reject our identity as God's special creation, as his bride. Our de- oh, friends, our desires are so distorted by sin. Our sin is so serious that we don't even get it how much damage it's done to our own spirit, how much damage it's done to the people around us, what it's done in our relationship with God. God says, I've divorced you. Without Jesus Christ, you're divorced from your loving God in heaven. You are outside of his care. What's more important this moment is to be made right with him again. You see... God, as a living illustration, compares humankind to a cheating spouse. And friends, oh, I know this is hard. But if that has ever happened to you, you know the pain that comes along with it, the damage that it does to your heart. It's not unrepairable, as we'll see in a moment. But you know the pain and damage it caused, don't you? And that's what all of us, all of us, have done to God. All of us have been unfaithful to him. But here's the remarkable part. And this is the third thing I want to 
describe about why we're pursuing this study. Our God is a relentless pursuit after us. In Jeremiah, God writes a certificate of divorce and how hard that is. You'd think God would be done with us. You'd think he'd permanently put us away and say, that's, that's it with them. I gave him a chance. I was vulnerable. I created them to love me and they all walked away from me and loved everything but me. So forget it. It's over. The Bible's message, though, is that when God saves his people, they enter into an unconditional romance, a permanent and lasting marriage. God does not leave us this way. Even though we prove over and over again to be unfaithful, he comes back again and again to pursue us with his love and proposes his renewal of vows to us. He continues to woo us with his love. He is ready to renew it with us again. He gives us, even in Scripture, when we respond to him in repentance and faith, he restores our virginity to us. Watch this, Isaiah 51. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness, I am like a bridegroom dressed on his wedding and a bride with her jewels. You know what this is saying here? I am clothed in white. I was a prostitute. Yet somehow the power of God has made me clean again and has forgiven it. And I'm back in union with him. Wow. It's gone. It's as if you never did it. Pure. Wash me, and I will be clean, David said in Psalm 51, and I will be whiter than snow. He had just committed adultery and then murdered her husband. And he cries out these words, I have sinned against you, and you alone have I sinned. Wash me, and I'll, I'll be clean. Purify me, and I'll be whiter than snow. There is an unconditional romance that God invites you to have. Ephesians 5, Jesus makes her holy, the bride holy and clean, he washes her by the cleansing of God's word. He did this. Why? Why did he clean her? Why did he wash her? He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. So that means it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many gods you've worshipped. It doesn't matter how many people you've sinned against, how many lies you've destroyed, even if it's your own. You can come back and Christ will wash you clean. And he will make you his spouse. Isn't that incredible? Oh, we're fooling around with money and jobs and work and family when this incredible romance is at our doorstep every day. Take hold of it. For once, take hold of it. What amazing grace. I have loved you, Israel, with an everlasting love and with loving kindness I will draw you. In Hosea, the, the prophet marries a prostitute, and she leaves him, of course. And she pursues other lovers, many other lovers. And did you know that if you read through Hosea in chapter 3, she ends up in slavery, and she's on an auction block, ready to, ready to be sold into slavery. And guess who shows up? 
Hosea. This face sort of kind of peeking through the crowd. Guilty Gomer, that was her name, sees him and wonders, why is he here? To laugh, to scorn, to jeer. What's he going to do? And shockingly, she gets sold to the highest bidder, to her husband. And he buys her back. How many times have you bought back your wife? Because you're going to need to. How many times have you bought back your husband? Because you're going to need to. They might not commit adultery, but they're going to sin against you. They're going to fail you. They're going to disappoint you, and it's going to be hard. And you're going to need to forgive them. You're going to need to take the sin, and you're going to need to pay for it. And if you can't do that, your marriage won't work. You want to know why? Because our relationship with God doesn't work outside of that. It doesn't work unless Jesus forgives our sins and our marriages don't work unless we can forgive each other. Period. To take it on ourselves and to love our spouse. You see, if you can't do that, your marriage won't work. It just won't. You'll either, you'll either end up leaving each other or you'll just end up in this business deal. You stay over there on your side of the house. I'll stay on this side of the house. And we won't fight, but we'll have what we want. Right? It's a business deal. No love, no passion, no intimacy, no communion with each other. That's not a marriage. And that is not what God wants with you. He doesn't want a butt and a seat to warm it up. He wants your heart. He wants your passion. He wants your love. He wants your prayers. He wants you to go to his love story and read it, his letter to you, with, with bated breath every day. That's what God wants with you. He doesn't want a business deal with you. I'll go to church if I can make lots of money. That's a business deal. You see, friends, oh, what a picture. She ends up in slavery. Gomer's in slavery on the auction block, and guess who shows up one day on this auction block? Hosea, her husband. Imagine paying the price for someone else's adultery. But there we are, guilty, on the auction block, far from our creator husband. And who's in the crowd? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he outbids everyone else and buys us back with his blood. Oh, friend, will you come down from the stage, from the slave market of sin, and be free in your wedding Christ and be married to him. Would you do that? That's the love of loves. That's what marriage is meant to point us to. But then I will bring, I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young. And you will call me my husband. Oh Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. Charlie who? Susan who? Thomas who? All of your adulteries gone. You'll never even remember them. I will make you my wife forever, showing you unfailing love and compassion. Now, this is in Hosea. 
This is God speaking to an adulterous wife who is a prostitute. These are the words, like, as bad a scenario as you could imagine in your marriage. And this was the words of the husband. I will wipe away the bales from your lips, and you will never mention them again. You will make me... I will make you my wife forever, showing you unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you, and I will make you mine. And you will know me as the Lord. I will show love to those I called not loved. You remember God divorced Israel. He called them not loved. He called them not my people. But now, because of Christ and what Christ has done, I will call love to whom I called not love. I will say, now you are my people to whom I called not my people. And they will reply, you are my God. Oh, come on, friends. Where are you at this morning? The Song of Solomon is about love and marriage, but it's about so much more than that. This is the best job that I could do describing what marriage really is all about and what romance is really what, what romance is really meant to point us to. We've been so unfaithful. Oh, is, is there any sin we haven't committed? Isn't that true? Pride, jealousy, slander, greed, gluttony, lust, everything. I mean, you name it, we've done it multiple times, probably today. So there we stand in our own sin on the auction block, guilty, slaves, to all of our fake grooms. But Jesus, arms extended, buys us back with his love. Will you come to him? Will you reach your hand out and come down? Come down, friend. If you don't know Jesus Christ, he offers you something this morning. He proposes something to you. Come down off the stage. And be wed to the creator. Come to him. If you're married or maybe considering marriage, would you realize that you need to love your spouse like this? That's the kind of sacrificial love. That's the hard work that Jesus went through to marry us. If you're single, um, would you pine for Christ and not a husband or a wife? You know, there's a better bridegroom preparing a place for you right now who has promised to return for you with all his holy angels. A husband is not God. A wife is not Jesus. So come to him and trust him. Next week, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. Who do you know that doesn't need the sweet, forgiving, gracious, and lovely kiss of our Savior? I hope that you can bring him next week. I hope that you'll be here next week because we're going to start talking about this next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. 